try to shore up your manhood with loud motorcycles. It yeah. Just, it's so, I mean, for me, I, I hate it. It's like a I flashy car will automatically assume you have a tiny penis. Do you really want that? Yeah. Do you want that assumption? I to mean, be <laughs> it's going to play against you. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. The show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we won't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. And if you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or you want to find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs here in LA, you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top shows here in Art of Charm. We'll send you the fundamentals as well, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking, negotiation relationship management, and all that stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. We have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world pretty much every single week, so no excuses if you think you're too far away. Details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp or give us a call here in the office. You can even email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I do read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we talk with my friend Olivia Fox Cabane, author of The Charisma Myth. She's got a new book out, we're talking about brain neuroplasticity, learning, creativity, innovation, as well as a lot of ways that your brain works that you just have no idea. Limited willpower. There's so many topics in this one. We go pretty deep, and I think you'll dig it. So enjoy this one with Olivia Fox Cabane. All right. So you're writing a new book. I am. What is the new book? I'm, uh, I'm actually almost done. Thank okay. God. Yeah. It's going to be really good. It's going to be pretty damn good. The book is going to be pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of this one. Yeah. Books are people's babies, right? Yes, they are. See, that's why I'm not going to have kids. I mean, yeah, you don't need books. You have two ba- books, <laughs> so you don't need. Seem to be three, actually. Yeah. Oh, wait. There's another one. There's a third one that's going to come out 10 months after this one comes out. Really? So you're writing two books right now? and Yeah, we, uh, my co-author and I, I got a co-author for, for this one. One of my best friends, actually. It's it's really hilarious. If you look at, we write on a program called Scrivener. And uh, if you see the- I've heard of that. Yeah, the dialogue between co-authors. Uh, in my case, there's like death threats. There's, because, you know, I'm slightly more of a grammar Nazi than, um, than, well, he really, his approach to grammar and punctuation, his approach to punctuation is like pin the tail on a donkey. Mm-hmm. And so by the- um, by the third missed hyphen, I'm like, Judah, if you miss one more, I am fucking mm. coming tonight murdering you in your sleep. Yeah, because it's annoying. Because it's fun to be able to, you know, get all ramped up on that. And, uh, on grammar? You're mm-hmm. high on grammar? <laughs> yeah. Listen, you gotta be high on something. No, it's fun. Um, yeah, so we're, uh, we actually wrote two books at the same time. I really wasn't expecting us to be stumbling on something this big. Okay. And it turns out that um, neuroscientists are now pretty clear on what is the 
part of your brain that is the source of all human creativity, all human innovation, all human genius. And this part of the brain has never been revealed to the lay public, to the mass market before. What part of the brain are you talking about? So it's, um, it's a network composed of, depending on who you talk to, between 10 and 13 different areas of the brain. And okay. together they're called the default mode network. Right. The DMN. Yeah. Did you read the... The book that you wrote oh. <laughs> on the subject? I, I did, actually. Well, you got the preview. I did, yeah. No, because the reason, because I totally forgot to send it to you. The reason that I'm so surprised is that it's such a new emerging part of the science that even neuroscientists who are not in that exact field don't know about it. So when you come up and you're like, yeah, it's a DMN, I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I read a lot of neuroscience yeah, journals. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really good. So um, sure. and, uh, what was hard in, in writing the book was deciding at what point do we stop and are willing to put out what we have, understanding that guaranteed something new revolutionary is going to come out two weeks later, right? Right. Yeah, so you could write a whole thing and then it's like, Oh yeah, that was all, that's all wrong. Right, yeah. Doesn't work like that. Uh, but so that's the science pitch. And so the science pitch is that um, this is actually the first time, and we've checked pretty much all over the world, it's the first time that the lay public is going to be introduced to, um, hi, you know, we know we, we know what part of your brain is the source of all your innovation, creativity, and genius. Here's what right. it's called. Here's how it works. Here's what slows it down. Here's what speeds it up. Cool. Here's how you can use it. Goodbye. That's the science pitch. The Hollywood pitch kind of is, um, do you remember when we said like the charisma myth Yeah. in one sentence, charisma is not innate. It can be learned. Here's how. Right. This book's about breakthroughs. Turns out breakthroughs, they're not accidental. What they do you mean by breakthrough? That aha, that epiphany, that like eureka moment, that is a breakthrough. In any field or any? The field is irrelevant. It's the brain process that matters. Okay. And it turns out those can be induced. So what's happening in your brain when you break through? What, what, because I think people are like, is that just like a really good idea? Or is it, maybe I don't need this job? Or like, <laughs> what is a breakthrough, you know? Well, actually, uh, you can, you can split uh, breakthroughs into a bunch of different uh, categories. And it's really funny because when in the charisma myth, when I, I broke the, the charisma styles into four, right? And people are always like, why four, not five? I'm like, listen, there are four charisma styles in the book because Penguin wanted charisma styles, period. Yeah. Here, on the other hand, there really are different categories of breakthrough. And so let's, let's knock one out of the playing field right now. Um, paradigm breakthroughs are the Einstein revolutions. That's when I like you that word. Yeah, but that's when you have one insight that is going to change the world forever. Now, they are as much a question of timing and luck as they are of genius. And if you look at Einstein, he stood on the shoulders of gazillion giants. And so chasing after a paradigm breakthrough is a recipe for misery. Those really happen once per, now I'm going to make shit up, but once yeah. per generation, right? Okay. And, uh, and those are not the ones that you should be chasing after. Right. That's paradigm breakthroughs. Let's put those aside. Okay. Eureka breakthroughs, Eureka insights. Those are the ones that we know best. That's Archimedes in the bathtub, suddenly has the idea how he's going to measure the crown. Eureka. Mm. He runs naked through the streets of Athens, shouting Eureka the whole way. But then, you know, running through Athens naked wasn't such yeah, a Yeah, I was going to say, right? what else is new? <laughs> yeah. Him and 15 other naked people were like, why are you running? <laughs> well, you know. Um, 
So Eureka Breakthroughs, that's uh, tends to be a very concrete answer to a very concrete problem. Concrete problem, how do you measure the surface of an irregularly shaped object? Concrete solutions, submerge it in water, etc., etc. So far, so good. Yes? Yes. Okay. Metaphorical breakthroughs, metaphorical insights are some of the most important that you can have, but they don't happen in the same instant eureka way. Metaphorical insights tend to come through dreams, through metaphors. Okay. The invention of the sewing machine, um, Elias Howe dreamt that he was captured by an indigenous tribe and that the spares that they had, think of a, of a normal sewing needle. You've got one pointy end and one blunt end with a hole, right? Right. Okay. If you look at a sewing machine, the hole is actually at the pointy end. And right, that's what enabled is, yeah. lock stitching, which revolutionized <laughs> stitching, which is why you can wear what you're wearing today. Right. And so he had that through dreams. All right. Uh, metaphorical insight is an insight. It's a breakthrough where your brain speaks to you in dreams, in metaphors. Okay. And then you have to interpret it to the specific problem that you're looking to solve. That's a metaphorical insight. So are you saying... A part of your brain already has the answer Correct. and is like, listen, conscious brain, I don't know how to tell you this. Perfect. So I'm just going to rain elephants into a pool of jello until you realize that I'm trying to tell you that you need to put memory foam on your mattress or whatever. The default mode network is called a default mode because it's always on. It's constantly operating in the background. The problem is that though it constantly operates in the background, it needs to be in the foreground to be able to communicate what it's found. Okay. So for example, yeah. your default mode is the one that makes you think, oh, I want to go to Bali. Mm -hmm. Your executive mode is the one that buys the tickets, um, books the flights. The problem is that for most of the day, especially in our modern world, the executive mode, what's also called the linear mode, is the one that's operating. Okay, that's the conscious, mm -hmm. that's the plane buying mode. Yeah. Got it. So rich mode, the one that gets the genius insights, it's the one that says, I need to go to Bali. And it's right, because something transformational is going to happen to you, whatever. Right. Linear mode, the one that says, we need to buy the plane tickets, we need to uh, book the hotel, that's the one that gets you from point A to point B. Okay. The problem is they can't be operating at the same time. Why not? Because that's not how your brain works. That's not how your brain works. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Simple way of saying it. Awesome. Yeah. And when does rich mode get its moment in the spotlight? When your linear mode is distracted with something that's just enough to keep mm. it busy, such as a repetitive, mindless task that you know very well, such as washing in the shower. Right, showering. I right? Great ideas in the shower. That the reason you get those great ideas is because your linear mode is kept just busy enough and your rich mode can suddenly pop up with all the genius insights. The whole brain is a metaphor for my relationship with Jenny. <laughs> as soon as somebody or something can get me to be quiet for long enough for her to talk, the genius, genius comes, comes out. out. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah, okay. I like it. Now, we need both parts of the brain. We need both modes. We need both uh, networks. It's just that we're in a, in a time and in an era where we no longer daydream. So the default mode Though it can, you, you have a backlog of genius ideas in your brain right now. Oh, I see. Because it, we have phones, we don't ever... Exactly. Yeah. It never gets a chance to speak up because you're constantly having your executive action network run the show. Right, right. Normally, it would shut off and do something automatic. 
You're playing Candy Crush. Right, you're playing Candy Crush. And it's going to get even worse when we have self-driving cars and stuff like that because you can literally, or not, because then you can take a nap on your way to work. Yeah, but how many people are going to do that? It's going to yeah. get even worse when you have you're the work in the car. Google Glass implanted in your retina. Yeah. and You're going to be looking at clouds and it's going to be searching for things that the cloud looks like on the internet instead of your imagination. <laughs> you won't be even looking at the clouds anymore. No, no you'll, be watching, you'll be watching other people play Candy Crush there you go. Google, on YouTube. There you go. Oh my goodness. That's scary to think about. But so obviously we want to get our our DMN working even more or at least coming through even more. Yeah, so think of it as a magic cauldron, essentially. Okay. Um, you're the alchemist. And inside your brain, you have a magic cauldron. That magic cauldron is your default mode network. And if you're going to make a magic potion, you're going to have to go out, gather the ingredients, fill it up into the cauldron, light the fire, stir it, distill and then go sell that potion around the court. That's exactly what you do to get genius from your brain. Okay. That's how you induce an insight, a breakthrough, an epiphany, a world-shaking, life-shattering, whatever, step-by-step. Uh, step. Right, yeah, okay. So we have to foster that. You do, and you can. And one of the, the things that's fascinating with human innovation is that up until now, um, the process was, was left pretty much up to chance. So if you look at the invention of the of the tin can. It was invented by a Frenchman called Nicolas Appert for Napoleon's army. To hold food for long periods of time. Now, once you've got the actually glass jars, then tin cans, how long do you think it took for someone to invent the can opener? Yeah, not very long, I would imagine. More than a hundred years. Are you kidding me? No. How, so what did they do before? Just bash it on a rock yes, until it exploded? Or using knives and, and oh injuries gosh. and in many ways, that's what happens in your life because you're not consciously guiding that process of breakthrough. You get a time when, do you know when the first steam engine was created? No. It was Hero in the Egyptian court of God knows I forgot which king. In Alexandria, a working steam engine was actually built. They saw it as just a toy. A novelty, yeah. Yes. And the next drawing of a steam engine doesn't show up until 1,400 years later. Oh, my God. When Da Vinci makes a drawing for how to roast a pig on a spit. But it's still not put into practice then. Right. And it's, it's for not cooking yet, right? instead of, you know, everything yeah. in the world. Yeah. And so that's what's happening in your brain right now, where there's constantly your default mode, your magic cauldron is coming up with half of a genius revolutionary idea for your life. And then because you're not directing the process, it's not until 10 years later that you have the second insight and you put the two of them together and like, fuck, why didn't I have that 10 right. years before? Oh my God. This is why. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. Now, if you start guiding the process deliberately, right. as they do the Astro Teller, who was one of our big advisors on the book, who's the head of Google X, the secret arm of Google that comes up with everything, mm. what they do with their brains is they deliberately guide it step by step by step through all the go get the ingredients, load the cauldron, light the fire, etc., And that's why they churn out genius idea after genius idea after genius idea. So what are they doing at that place? Have you been there? Yes, yes. Yeah. What do they do? I imagine dudes like laying on really comfortable furniture and thinking, and then they get up in a frenzied panic and start building things with like electric Lego looking objects. You could. Now that said, we have, there are a couple of myths around innovation and genius ideas. Mm -hmm. And the first one is um, the thin air myth that Innovation comes out of thin air. That is absolutely not true. Innovation is often 
the same idea applied to a different fields,、uh-huh. or it's tinkering. It's a small tweak on an already existing idea in the same field. And if you look, that makes sense.、Right? I mean, you see that all the time. Like、yeah. Uber didn't invent the idea for a taxi, right? Or a car service, right? And exactly. Yet, it's worth more、exactly. than any car service ever in the history of car services. Yeah. Because they figured out a way to plug it into something that everybody's farting around with twenty four seven anyway. Correct. And same if you look at the light bulb, they were tinkering. If they were, if you look at the steam engine, they、right. were just tinkering on pre existing innovations. So. If you look at at what happens at Google X, and there's a there's only a limited amount I'm yep, allowed to allowed say, to say.、Uh, you'll show up and you'll see them tinkering with stuff. You'll see a, a hydrofoil car just like floating around above the the ground. It's ridiculous, but you'll just see them tinkering with stuff. And it's not like it's it's not like they're sitting around and all of a sudden they、uh, jump up and Eureka! They've got the entire idea. That happens sometimes, but that's only one of many possible different kinds of insight. They could be sitting around having the same dream of something that their default mode is trying to tell them,、right. and then little by little they figure out what their default mode is trying to tell them. Now back to the show. How do you start to go down that road? Because I feel like I do it only by accident, and I'm not even like all jokes aside. Alcohol often has a pl- part to play、yes. in it. Why? Because wild ass guess. Because I'm not what one. I'm able to sort of go down the rabbit hole because I'm usually relaxed when I'm drinking it. But also my inhibitions aren't going.、Beautiful. You know what? You should really take care of that email you got there.、Yeah. It's just like screw it, and I start thinking about the problem that I'm already going. It's easier for me to grab a hold of something in my brain, like a thread, a balloon thread that's floating upwards, and just go up with it when I've had a glass of scotch. Which could turn into a really good excuse to drink a lot more than I already am, but but honestly, I think it. it I mean, even the idea for this very show, the whole show, the whole podcast, AJ came up with it while we were drinking, and he was like, "Dude, we wanted to tell people about this. People listen to us talk. We talk anyway." I was reading a blog two months ago about this thing that Apple's starting to do. We should do that. In my friend's basement, and it was like a really interesting call. And it was, you're right. It was. It seems like one idea at the time when everything plugs in together, because you're not thinking of all the separate pieces. You're just thinking of the fi- the finished product. Exactly, exactly. When I actually, it probably had been simmering in your brain for a while. But what you describe is perfect. What happens is、um, that executive action network, that linear mode, it's your social inhibitor. It's the social monitor. It's the one, and don't get me wrong, we need it. This is the one that makes us civilized. And the, the famous case of Phineas Gage, the railroad employee, who got a,、um, I think it was a bolt of steel that shot through his brain. It was a, an accidental lobotomy.、Ugh. And in the weeks following that that accident,、um, with his PFC, his prefrontal、uh, cortex damaged, he lost his social inhibitor. So all of a sudden, he was coming up with the most. Inappropriate, incestuous, just like comments that were horrific because he didn't have a social inhibitor anymore. We、right. need that one. However, if you look at people who have less social inhibition, or if you want to put it, the people who have social disinhibition, a couple of ways that you can have it. One, you can be born with it. Okay. And in some cases, that can lead to fantastic amount of creativity, but it's harder to function in the normal world, right? Okay. Or It can be the result of an accident or a disease, and there's some some evidence that in some cases 
a degeneration of the prefrontal cortex leads to a, a sudden explosion of creativity in in areas that they like investment bankers becoming genius painters and musicians. It's really fascinating, really? right? Or um, there's the uh, deliberate turning off of the social inhibitor. And we're all playing chemists with, with our brains. With alcohol or drugs. Or drugs. Yeah. So that's one way to go Drugs work it. better for those of you out there interested in that. They all work <laughs> differently. Okay. Um, or you can do it without alcohol or drugs, still playing chemist with your own brain, just doing it in, in different ways. And that's like what, what exercise or something. Exercise or? is part of it, but we're looking at turning off your social inhibitor. Oh, right. Yeah. So we're looking at social disinhibition. So it's a pretty specific thing. How do you foster that? The two big fears, the two big things that keep us from genius ideas. Um, one is the fear of failure and it's really the fear of shame. And the other one is the fear of uncertainty. Okay. And those are the two big black monsters that are keeping your, um, that are essentially keeping blocked the genius ideas that you have floating around your brain right now. How do you structure this? I mean, is there anybody actually doing this? I feel like this is some military stuff. I'm, it's so interesting that you bring that up. My co-author, Judah, actually trains the U.S. Army Special Forces. Really? Yeah, because it makes sense for them to, because they're always trying to solve problems that you can't Google for yeah. example, and Google is also trying to solve the same problems <laughs> uh, or maybe different problems. But yeah, you know, they have to come up with like, okay, in history, this problem has never been solved adequately. And also there's 200 people in the world that have experience with it. There's that, but there's also what we were fascinated with them is, um, so the fear of uncertainty is, is one of the biggest blockers for genius ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs. And the reason that it's a big blocker is that if you're not willing to, to step into uncertainty, innovation by its very nature is uncertain. If you're not willing to deal with uncertainty, then you're only going to be doing things that are already proven to work, therefore are not innovative, right? Okay, so why are we afraid of uncertainty in the first place? I guess it doesn't, I mean, fear of failure, I totally get. But fear of uncertainty doesn't seem as obvious, right? Right. And yet, have you ever been in a situation where you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and you almost would prefer like bad answer rather than yeah. being left in suspense. Of course. Yeah. There you okay. go. Definitely. So uncertainty registers in the human brain, almost like physical pain as a tension, a gap where the brain cannot be easy again until it has been resolved. And the amygdala lights up in the same way. Now, different people have different comfort levels with uncertainty. And if you're an entrepreneur, by definition, you have a higher level of comfort. Okay. Yeah. So that explains why I refuse to pay $10 to get my SAT results early when everybody else did. And they're like, I can't believe you haven't called and paid 10 bucks for the early for answers. Example. And I'm like, fear of uncertainty. I don't have that. Well, but actually you I still do. do. It just depends. Yeah. It can be in different areas. It just, I, didn't, I just didn't expect it to go well. I was sort of putting it off. But It can be different areas, can be different thresholds. But one okay. example where uh, both my co-author and I coach a lot of, um, of founders of startups that are now quite large. Okay. And one of the issues is that the founders are by nature super comfortable with uncertainty, understandably. That's why they're entrepreneurs. That's why they're founders. Mm -hmm. But then they're now a 1,500 piece person organization. And the employees that join a 1,500 person organization are not the same kind of people that will join a 20 person startup. And so then the founders expect everyone in their org to have the same comfort level with uncertainty. Yeah. That's not going to work. No. If they were that comfort with, comfortable with uncertainty, they wouldn't have joined a company this big in the first place. That's a good point. Yeah. I make them from time to time. Yeah, yeah. That, okay, that's interesting.
That yeah. is that so is really uncertainty. So we have different uh, thresholds, and when you hit your maximum thresholds comfort level of uncertainty, your brain goes into fight or flight mode. Okay, and that's when the primal part of the brain hijacks controls and shuts down all the more either emotional or cognitive reasoning abilities that you might have. And I can see this playing out in my own business right now. Looking back at stressful times in the business, there were so many things that were so wrong that were correctable. And I keep thinking, oh, you've learned so much since then. I'm like, wait a minute. No, I knew about this <laughs> then too. Yeah. I just didn't do it because I was busy freaking the fuck out. Mm -hmm. But now, now that we've gotten rid of some stressors inside With the business. And, so clear. And, and looking at people who like never belonged here that were always crawling up my butt about everything. Now I'm like, oh, not only are we doing better than we ever were financially, better than we ever were in terms of audience, market share, everything. And it's the only things that have changed, the only material things that would have changed are I'm no longer worried that an email with someone's name on it in my inbox is going to cause like a heart palpitation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because every time they email me, it's complete catastrophe, uh, what is it, catastrophization, or they're angry, or they're in a bad mood, or whatever. Like there's, there were those people here, and they're gone. And now it's like, thank you, they're out of here. And there's other things like, oh, I have a different work environment. Like just moving from one place to another where I was more comfortable, it materially affected the business. And that's why guys out there who have business partners and stuff like that, they'll tell me like, oh, my partner's going through some crap right now and I'm annoyed with him because it's affecting business. And it's like, no, you guys need to take care of each other because it's kind of like a marriage. You can't have your wife getting like, audited by the IRS or something or the equivalent thereof at work without it affecting without you. it affecting you mm -hmm. but people somehow think like oh my business partner got dumped so he needs to step up and handle his job it's like completely ridiculous because he's got all this cortisol and stuff going through his head and you just expect his performance to be totally fine I mean it's, it's ludicrous it's not gonna happen it, the, one of the things to remember is that we are we are one vast magma of instincts and emotions with the thin veneer of civilization on top. And what's happening in, in what you described is that we tend to go into either fight, flight, or freeze. And when you see people having that like deer caught in the headlight uh, expression on their face, they've gone into freeze mode. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, either your inability to handle it, your fear of stepping into it, um, or your tendency to make premature decisions because you're so uncomfortable in it, that will lead you to not leaving enough time for the cauldron to bubble, for the genius idea to bubble up, literally. Right. Teaching you how to better handle uncertainty, that's one of the first things we do. And when, you, when we were talking about the special forces, what Judah and I were both fascinated by is, you want to talk about uncertainty? When these yeah. guys go out on missions, getting killed is often one of the better outcomes. Yeah, right. Because right? if you get captured, dude, oh, it's just like the man. worst thing ever. Oh, yeah. It's like, you, you better have a cyanide capsule. Do they have those? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. would imagine, because otherwise it's oh, just going to be the worst the thing ever. The torture is, yeah. So we were talking to them and we said, and one of them, Matthew Brady, I think his name is, and, and they were going out on mission and they were in Afghanistan and, and he's a, a helicopter um, pilot, Delta Force. And so we we're like, how the fuck do you get yourself ready when, right? Right when a you don't know if you're going to die, you don't know how many of your brothers you're going to bring back, right? And and again, death is often the best of the options. Yeah. So how do you prepare for that? And they they um, told us how they walk step by step through flight sims, 
uh, the more flight simulations you do, the better prepared you are. They actually have table read-throughs. And what's fascinating is it's the same process that a film crew will go through at the beginning of filming. They'll have a table read. The Delta Force guys do exactly the same thing. You mean like a, a read a, of a, have a table scenario? Read. Yep. And they'll role play all the what ifs and try to prepare for as many situations as possible. And then what they do, and this is really interesting, it's the same as with athletes. Athletes, when they go up into any kind of sports performance, mm -hmm. upon the outcome of that can rest their entire career and livelihood because they're so unidimensional, right? right? This is, they yeah. could be their sponsorships. This could really, the rest of their career can hang on in the balance of that one outcome. Right. And the way they handle it and the way a lot of the force guys told us that they handle it was through routines and rituals. And that for us was fascinating because we saw that all the high level athletes directed their brain to either peak performance or recuperation mode through specific routines and rituals. Same with the Delta Force guys. What kind of routines and rituals are you talking about? I, I mean, obviously I can see Delta Force guys training in the fake mock-up buildings like the Osama bin Laden raid and things like that over and over and over and over again. And that's why they always know what to do if like one helicopter crashes, the, the probability is low. But then that happened and they were like, no problem, we just set these bombs on it and the other one has enough room for us because we thought of that shit, right? So <laughs> they're like ready for that, you know? And and they know that, oh, some of these doors were fake. Well, saw that coming, so we know that we can get away with, we have these all these exits covered and all that stuff. But what about athletes? I mean, they practice. Is it just practice or are you talking about something more involved? I am talking about something specific. What was fascinating, Tony Schwartz in the, the Energy Project, they were studying peak performance athletes and they were expecting that the best athletes in the world would start at base state, ramp up to peak performance state. And for example, for a tennis match, stay at peak performance state for the entire tennis match and then ramp down. Okay. Not at all what was going on. Hmm. It turns out that throughout the match between each point, they would ramp up, ramp down, ramp up, ramp down. And that is what allowed us, them to get to real peak performance. And the way they would tell both their brain and their body to either ramp up or ramp down was through tiny rituals. So I can never remember if it was uh, Lendl McEnroe who would, before each point, kind of tap the, the ball uh, with his left hand three times, and then he would fiddle with his racket. Really? Right? And that was telling his brain, we're going into ramp up mode. Oh, that's because it's like baseball players. Yes. Oh, that's interesting Same thing. And then after each point, he would like wipe the, the, the sweat off his brow with his left hand and do something else. And that was telling his brain and body, you got 30 seconds to ramp down, recuperate, do it now. Oh, wow. One of the forest guys told us that what he does when he's on shift for like 20 hours straight, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. And the only way that he can survive that and be not flatline, but still be attentive when something could blow up any moment is that he takes regular breaks and he plays the stupidest video, he'll play Tetris, because that is what tells his brain you can turn off now. Right, and then the his just autopilot mode is yeah, that's his ritual to ramp down. His Tetris. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what's really interesting is also looking at the most genius painters, novelists, writers who you think as these wild creative. So many of them have taken their entire day from like breakfast to brushing their teeth at night. And they've dropped it into a sacrosanct routine that never, ever varies. And that's loading the certainty bucket so that in those areas where they need to be able to handle complete uncertainty, blank page, blank canvas, they can go for broke. Yeah, because they, it's like that willpower 
that same concept that willpower is a finite resource. Yeah, you should reserve it for what's important. Right. And uncertainty, so- exactly. You have only, you've got an uncertainty threshold like everyone else. So if you know that you want to be able to handle uncertainty in a specific area of your life, don't use it, that uncertainty handling capacity elsewhere. Now back to the show. That is brilliant because I can I can also see that playing out in in well you didn't invent the brain calm down <laughs> um, I can also see that playing out in business as well right so for example when you have somebody working with you or you have a project that you're working on you might work on it for three hours with capable people in the morning and be like man this is a long day but then on a day when you're just like making regular phone calls and eating at Chipotle, it's like a really easy day, but it's the same amount of work or less for this project in terms of like time, effort, theoretically. But then you have this, that whole thing where your brain is constantly firing on all cylinders to fill in the uncertainty to, or to create something, which I guess is what. It is. is the, Creation and uncertainty are, are hand in hand. Right. No uncertainty, no innovation. But here's the thing that you don't realize is that if that morning you had to stop by um, Walgreens or Walmart and decide between right. 20 brands of laundry to pick your one detergent, you've just used up your right. paradox of choice, multiple uncertainty handling, comparison uh, ability brain. And you are not going to have as much of that available when you're trying to find the genius idea that's going to solve the thing that's going to be a heart surgery revolution yeah. because of the laundry detergent. Well, I also have weird rules like that that I just thought, and other people certainly think, are just me being a diva, where I'm like, oh, I don't do shows after 5 p.m. or, mm, or 6 p.m. Oh, totally. And they're like, oh, why? You know, family time or something? And I'm like, which is what, that's the excuse I do give. People who don't create things and are just like on a bullshit PR tour. They're like, what are you talking about? This is easy. All you do is talk or you let me talk about my new product, you know? But I'm like, I, I gotta be fresh for this. Cause if I'm not it, and I also get really angry if I'm, I've got a day with like three or four shows and someone's like, Hey, look at this thing. And then here's a bunch of crap that needs urgent attention. I get really angry because I'm not trying to waste energy from the two hours that I have free to like pick out any sort of choice or like answer your dumb banking thing or fart around with like I don't want to deal with that at all and I and that might even be like figuring out what I want for lunch I just I don't even want that I will order it online I go in if they get it wrong it's annoying and I'm like this is why actors sometimes are total dicks because they're trying to get something done and like every little ounce of extra effort that has to go into something is really irritating there's a concept which um, quite a few people are now starting to talk about with which is a choice minimal lifestyle and it's a really smart move of reducing choice in every possible thing that is not an important choice so that then you've got your full brain capacity still available for the areas where you want to be able to. Yes. Yeah, I definitely, I can understand that. It's, it goes hand in hand with business decisions and things like that when people try to force that stuff on Fridays or whatever. It's uh, it's considered a faux pas in any business to do business on Friday generally, but if someone's trying to force a decision out of you late on a Friday night, it, it actually, it's a tactic that when I it went is. to law school, it, you would run hard with that. <laughs> like, oh, it's uh, Friday at four and your lawyers want to leave and you're tired and you want this handled before Monday so that you can enjoy this your weekend. This is when you're going to make poor decisions. This is when I'm going to, and this is when me in negotiation, I'm going to be like, all right, we have a deal if you can go up by five grand instead of 10. And they're like, 
a week ago or two days ago or two hours ago, they were like, hell no. And now they're like, deal, because they can see the door. I also let them see the door. <laughs> you evil, evil yeah. genius. I'm like, and, and we might even do that. Like, I might have them face the wall during uh, the morning session if we're doing a really exhausting one back when I used to be a lawyer, actually. And then they were like, okay, we're, we're in here. I'm not going anywhere. And then towards the evening, it's like, you sit on that side of the table and they're just looking out the window or they're looking at the door and they're like, I could be doing anything but this right now. Oh yeah. All you have to do is agree to my demands. <laughs> yeah. And, but it's true. It's a thing. It's measured. I mean, people know this now, but five years ago it was like willpower. No, you're just a schlub. Yeah. You, you can't get things done because you don't, you don't have willpower. Yeah. My favorite book on willpower is Ke Kelly McDonald's the, the Willpower Effect. It's a bright yellow book. And the research that's been done by quite a few of the willpower researchers, finding that it's glucose replenishable, that was fascinating. Oh, yeah. So it's like it's actually burning energy. Yeah. And specifically with glucose, you can replenish your, your willpower tank, essentially. If you look at uncertainty, you're very right to draw comparison to, to willpower. It's A, get comfortable progressively with uncertainty. And believe it or not, uh, poker is one of the very best trainings for that. Uh, one of my favorite interviews in the subject, and it's not in the um, in the preview yet, but it'll be in the book, was with Annie Duke, the Duchess of Poker. And she is like, she is hot, she is smart, she is witty, and my God, she thinks of everything in terms of uh, probability. Right, sure. So when uh, she and her then boyfriend were, were starting to go out, the entire family were starting to place bets on what were the probability that they'd get from date one to two to three. Oh, and she wow. thought that way also, right? Uh, but it's a poker is a fantastic training for getting comfortable with uncertainty because then you start looking at uncertainty differently and you stop looking at things in black or white. It'll succeed or it'll fail. And you'll, uh, but you'll look at it probabilistically, which like, is the right way to go about it. Right. It is. Can you give an example of that though? I mean, I, I think it's perfect because some people will make those calculations, but they're not necessarily conscious of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you, when you're deciding between two options, you are, whether or not you're realizing it, assigning them a probability of success to each option. You're I can, playing poker whether or not you realize it right then and there. And all games of chance are a really good training for handling uncertainty. If you combine that with meditation, with the awareness of what your brain and body are going through, this is when you really speed it up. Hmm. Once you're, you're increasing your comfort level of uncertainty, plus you're saving your capacity for handling uncertainty for the moments where it really matters, this is where you start getting really good. And once you've solved that obstacle, you're ready to tackle the uh, how do you handle failure, yeah. shame, and all that jazz. So should we be training ourselves to do this? Do we need to do this if we're not poker players? Yes. And I, I'll sadly never be a, a good poker player because I can't count um, <laughs> at all, really. But um, the way that I approached handling uncertainty was going on a uh, week-long or 10-day-long or longer meditation retreats. Because when you are, you're throwing yourself into the void and you are throwing yourself into, you've got nothing to distract yourself from the contents of your own mind. No pen, no paper, no books, no iPod, no nothing, right? It's a silent meditation retreat. You are walking through the complete uncertainty of not knowing anything of the internal experience you're going to go through for the next 10 days. It's one of the scariest things that I've ever done. It seems like it would be the opposite because you know exactly where you're going to be, what you're going to eat. And oh, honey, that's you know happen. the practicalities, but that is irrelevant. The real thing that makes it, that makes the intensity just 
really the most intense thing I've ever done is the internal experience. You have no idea what your internal experience is going to be like. Because stuff is just bubbling over from 20 years ago. Because anything could happen. When I come out of retreat and people always ask me, so how was it? I got into the uh, the habit of answering very, because it doesn't matter what you say after very, it will have been true. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Sounds like Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. Also very. What inspired you to write this book? I mean, I, I know before we kind of talked about, and and this is part of the intro to your book, people are obsessed with their bodies. Health is this crazy fad. If you look in iTunes, there's a million health shows. They all have a million friggin' listeners. But people aren't, and people talk about learning, and they talk about, uh, there's nootropics and things like that, but it's almost like designer bodies are the, the norm. That was like 90s, 2000, et cetera. Now we're talking about designer brains. Exactly. That's precisely the transition we're going into where we've been trying to modify our bodies forever, whether it's with nose rings, whether it's with, uh, what was it, lye, uh, lime that you put on your face to turn your face white and oh, just other horrible things. We've been looking at enhancing our minds for a while, but the same way that we hit upon body sculpting and body shaping, and that was a revolution, and we went into plastic surgery, for better and for worse, um, the same way that we're now really morphing into that same uh, transition where although we've been working at changing our minds for a while, we now have the chemicals. We now have literally, we've got the brain surgery. For the moment, it's the equivalent only of medical surgery, but you can bet we're going to have the equivalent of plastic surgery for the brain pretty soon. And it's going to be get the happiness implant and large, you know, get a seek up in happiness. Yeah. It's coming. That's a, uh, that's kind of scary. It is. Because that's, you thought silicone leaks were bad. <laughs> Imagine when your happiness implant God. leaks. Oh, that's going to be ugly. Yeah. yeah literally. So that, that is happening. And frankly, what inspired us to write the book is simply that we had this science that the fact that no one had ever introduced this magic culture in the brain to the outside world was just mind-boggling. And it just had to be done. And you you actually drew an interesting parallel in the book, which is that designer bodies started with, like, bodybuilding. And then it's like, hey, you know, if you want to bodybuild, you've got to lift weights. And then it was like, actually there's this stuff that they got in Russia. And if you take handfuls <laughs> of these every morning, you're going to get huge. Yeah. And so now we're looking at, it's almost like the difference between what drugs do for your brain. Well, also drugs do for your body. We do have the physical exercises and the book is chock full of that. Uh, we now have the chemicals, which in the book we couldn't cover for, you know, political and, uh, mm. and, um, Liability reasons. <laughs> yeah. That's too bad. Yeah, it was really funny because a lot of the neuroscientists actually who know this, the field very well, and they were reviewing the book and every five lines, one of them would write and we'd say, you have this technique, this technique, this technique, and the neuroscientist would add, and drugs. And LSD. <laughs> and I'm like, right. yeah, thank you. We can't say that. Like ketamine, not going oh, in there. They really won't let you do that because oh, it's no. encouraging. Penguin? Are you kidding? Oh, that's and too it bad. it makes sense because... Well, it does because then people would do it, but it's also kind of like... You're just censoring yourself. Sadly. That's the true. Why do you think I wanted to? I like doing interviews with you. Yeah, because I. I won't be able to say this on Good Morning America. Right, no, because I can't even censor myself, (laughs) let alone somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Art of Charm and your your book have a parallel in that you're taking like, it's like the mixed martial arts of the field. Perfect. You're taking things that are effective tools from everywhere that values effectiveness over style. Yeah, and it's interesting because... um, I don't know if you talk about MMA and when you do the art of charm, but I'm every time I do a talk, I'm always riffing on uh, martial arts. And and when we're talking about the um, 
the way it's going to impact your body. And I apologize in advance. I know that like, I don't know, Kung Fu and Aikido are beautiful things in Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. They're really important, but I'm always telling people, listen, you're going to need a real for, for the body language of charisma. You're going to need a real martial art. We're talking yeah. Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. We're talking wrestling, judo. I mean, don't give me karate. Right. Boxing, things like that change the way that actors. Yeah. Now remember we too. talked about this a couple of years did. ago. The problem with boxing is that what you're really doing, if you've got your guard up is that you're protecting your cheekbones. You're in a, a curled up mode. Right. Let me put it this way. I'm always sending my female clients to BJJ because knowing there is a, a, gut level of confidence that comes with knowing that you could take the guy down that's sitting across the tables from you yeah. that nothing else can give you. And that you can do it from a position where you're normally being dominated by that oh, by a guy. Dude, I, Tell us something practical that we can do to give our brains a little bit of a workout before we let you go. So you've read Cialdini, right? And all yes. your guys read Cialdini. Excellent. You remember the American um, POWs in China and I read Korea? it when I was 14 years old. And you haven't read it since I don't, I read it when I was Jordan. 14. Were you not listening? Yeah, I should reread it. Maybe now that I can understand the words he was using. So actually what I, and you know, Cialdini is my kind of rock star, right? He's, uh, he's going to be, um, looking over this book nice. for us. Yeah. So the, one of the biggest things that you talk about with your guys is how to change their self image, right? Yes. You give them a lot of practical tools for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cialdini is helping us construct a, how to change your self image from A to Z what it takes. So there's this great experiment that Ellen Langer did at Harvard a, a while back where she took nursery home residents and put them in an environment that was time warp where everything was from the 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever was the, the right thing from, from when they were super young. Uh -huh. Within just a couple of like weeks. Like Captain America where he wakes up and he's, yeah, he's but, like, I was at that basketball game right? or baseball game. Um, these right. guys had improved eyesight, increased bone density, their epidermis had changed, their muscle reaction, they, everything in them had rejuvenated. You can change your own self-image by changing your environment. And what the way that a human being constructs their or his or her own self-image, they look at their present behavior, mm -hmm. and they look at their past behavior, and then they look at the proofs of their history around them. So if you act differently, Richard Wiseman is a guy I'd really recommend that uh, your, your listeners uh, read. And um, his most current one is called The As-If Principle. It's really good behavioral science. Change your behavior, and that will change your self-image. Change the proofs of your self-image that are around you, whether it's quotes. And remember, we've talked about this. Your brain doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. You can make shit up. Right. It will okay. physically restructure your brain. So does that mean, I'm trying to envision what this is, it's like, Hanging awards for achievements and inspirational things in your house. I mean, it's is it that simple? It's more than that. The brain's really visual. Then. So okay. find out who you have the perfectionistic mandate from, for example. Let's say that it's your, I don't know, it's your mom and your dad. Get a photo of them and then have all sorts of quotes around that picture of them encouraging you to be imperfect, them deploring the consequences of perfectionism. Is it true? No. Who the fuck cares? Your, right. your brain won't know. Right? That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's that's why dreams and lucid dreaming and stuff it's like so that effective. is so effective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What you are looking to do is convince your brain of a new self image. So it's not inspirational quotes. Words are so fucking slow to change your brain. You're looking for images. Okay. A you're looking for images of yourself. Um, so for example, let's say that you want to create a new self image of you that you're socially disinhibited. Get as many pictures as possible of you doing disinhibited things 
And one of the things we talk about, there's a couple of really interesting uh, training modes. Clowning, believe it or not. Like clown school? Yeah, clown school. Fantastic thing. Improv, even better. All of those are really good for social disinhibition because all of a sudden the social construct around you is flipped and you're rewarded and applauded for quote unquote failing. Oh, I see. Yeah. So if you need pictures, baby. Yeah. And if you need pictures of yourself doing things that are socially get drunk, yeah, get high, go get all the pictures that you removed (laughs) from Facebook 10 years ago and put them back and print them out. But you want those that then turned out well, right? right? You don't want your brain remembering. And then then I got arrested. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, So stuff like that. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Love. Awesome. Till the next one. Really interesting show. Limited willpower, always something that uh, is interesting to me and any kind of brain science. I'm always up for it, especially if we can turn it into layman's terms. And I really love the idea that we can start to build and design our brain, reprogram our brain. Of course, that's what we do at AOC. And any insight into that is always welcome. Thanks so much, Olivia. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. I find guests through your suggestions. I'm always down for that. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. Please reach out. I do read everything. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Olivia on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as her books and, and other work. Bootcamp details for our live programs at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And remember to subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Alternately, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android. Those are free. Be sure to review us on iTunes. We get ranked that way. That's how people discover us. That's how we beat out some of the other schleps who are just using their show to mercilessly pound you with advertising, just go to itunes.com slash theartofcharm or search for us there, you'll find us. And when you write a review, it makes me feel proud, of course, but it also helps keep us visible so people can find the credible advice that they need. And it's the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 